Ron Brash is Director of Cybersecurity Insights at The Verve. The last time I heard that name, it was a rock and roll band out of the UK. But this is The Verve, Verve Industrial Protection, right? What is The Verve Industrial Protection? What do you guys do? Well, it's many things and everything. Uh, it's Verve Industrial is very different than the other industrial cybersecurity companies. So I'll kind of circle back a little bit, but it's roughly 25, 30 years of, of experience, but it didn't begin as a cybersecurity company. Uh, cybersecurity is a relatively new concept. It came from a systems and integration uh, company and way back when from a, from a gentleman that worked for Westinghouse way back, uh, 30 years ago. And his name is Robert Babis or Bob, as we call him. And so Bob was one of those guys who put in turbines and did all this DCS programming work. And, and eventually at some point he decided, hey, I want to set up my own shop and put out a shingle outside. And uh, as he re- probably moved from project to project, he realized that there's, you know, security is really the administration and management of many systems and the upgrading of processes and stuff like that. So he kind of magically went, well, I need to control all of my assets and I need to know what they all are and I need to know where all the skeletons are. And so security kind of just kind of, kind of became an evolution of that. And so roughly about seven years, five, seven years ago, um, they Verve uh, kind of went through some management changes. Bob is still a, a driving factor, um, but John Livingston, the current CEO, kind of uh, invested heavily into the company and brought a new life. And it became not just a services company and an integrator, but it became a cybersecurity product company as well. And uh, it's a very different, unique route than, than the other companies in this space. And specifically focused on the ICS uh, scheduler infrastructure. That's the only thing yeah, you guys specifically. do. Specifically, the only thing we do. So we went. Every other company kind of went IT downwards into OT and ICS. We went the other way. We were OT and ICS first, and went upwards. Uh, our one of our main claims to fame is making IT technologies work for control systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't patch everywhere, but sometimes you can patch, and you can do it well. For example, is one of the many things we do. But uh, we take all of that knowledge there, and we advise, we support, we deliver product. You name it, we're probably doing it very, very different. But that's our specialty. When I was prepping for this call, I mean, everyone is familiar with all these zero-day attacks and exchange server things and SolariGate and SolarWind and supply chain. It just feels like the world is on fire. And it also just brought me back to a sobering reality that less than a month and a half ago, there was a water supply, uh, uh, there was a water supply attempted hack that was meant to be severely disruptive and, 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 and dangerous to an entire neighborhood in Florida. And we kind of just kind of forgot that that happened. How much of that stuff is actually happening that we're not hearing about? Help me understand the state of what it looks like in the real, in the field, as it relates to some of these infrastructure attacks that are, you know, sexy and and headline making. Yeah, well, first off, the the Oldsmar water attack is not the first attack on water. There's been several other incidences of that. And to be fair, I mean, it is very scary, right? Um, someone went in there and manipulated the, the process control uh, and could have could have resulted in someone being hurt or made ill or many persons. Um, but the reality of that isn't necessarily true. The reality of that, of that situation was they got in through an unauthorized, which was once authorized, a remote access tool called TeamViewer, mm-hmm. and they managed to get credentials from somewhere else. Okay, so it's a very low complexity uh, attack vector altogether. And then they, the operator stopped it. Now, there's actually many other cases where the operator would have stopped it anyways, uh, regardless, right? You know, the one main mistake was your, your control system shouldn't allow you to, to, to do like, you know, 10 times the amount of, uh, of sodium hydroxide in your water. You shouldn't, you shouldn't allow something that's not safe. 
On the other side of it, you should um, you should have other other backup mechanisms. For example, out of band failovers or or alarming that is not electronic, you know, primarily electronically driven. And so those would have most likely have have, uh, have been brought into this as well. So in the in the essence of the water incident, this one is could have happened to almost any mom and pop shop. I mean, take any discrete manufacturing you know, people that weld and make widgets or run a conveyor belt for making a concrete board. Um, Those are all things that would be uh, similarly affected under this exact same scenario. But because it was water, because human's health was in it, it was really blown up. Wait a second, though. But was it really blown up, though? I mean, the reality that someone can come in through TeamViewer with default password and really have access to that, where the operator, I'm just going on what the public reports were, and, you know, there's a YouTube video with law enforcement explaining what happened with an operator kind of seeing things happening on the screen. Like, it just feels and sounds rudimentary. It doesn't feel like the type of controls that should be in place in front of drinking water. Am I making sense? Yes, but the the part was in the news. They didn't talk about the other side of not just did the operator stop it. There's about five or six other checks and balances before the water uh, goes into the the main the the main main. Right, right, um, right. So and they and they were convinced that there were additional fail safe mechanisms that would not have had the lie get into the 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 water the actual water supply. But it's still ominous, exactly. right? I mean, it's still ominous oh. and nerve wracking that a lot of our mm-hmm. critical infrastructure is kind of duct taped together with these pieces of you know poor bits of software and password policies and sharing of screens and all this nonsense i mean that's the real reality of what that world looks like right oh it is and municipalities uh yeah i can say from canada maybe not for the united states but i think they work on the same premise is they all go to bid and they, they bid the cheapest and uh, once it gets built it's either outsourced and maintained right because usually the bodies aren't in the municipality to take care of it um, you know, there's no proper ownership and accountability. And so basically you wind up with paper mache, you know, a, a bowl, a water, a, a bowl made of paper mache that's got water in it and you keep slapping on more mache to try and make it better. That's the real ominous part of this is there's, this isn't just one municipality that, you know, probably is underfunded. Actually, they were underfunded. I think their budget was only like $36,000 US. Um, you know that they're already struggling with resources and manpower, that is the more ominous part, which is we're not taking the adequate precautions to make sure these facilities are secure and well-maintained, but we didn't engineer the engineer and adequate security from the beginning before we even get started. That's the truly omniscient part. This is, this is as you say, rudimentary, um, and it's not really novel. I mean, anybody can get in through RDP or take your pick or VPNs, but the, the, the other essence, the other core pieces there weren't there, and that's the scary piece to me, and that's what you should take away from this. And the reality is that a lot, like you mentioned, underfunded. The, the reality is a lot of these uh, uh, plants, these water plants, electricity plants, a lot of these critical infrastructure bits and pieces that you see uh, uh, scattered around neighborhoods in the U.S. are underfunded. No security teams. They're they're blocking and tackling on fishing and all the everyday things that these uh, you know things down the chain all the way down to ICS becomes. Uh, Lower priorities, is that fair? I, I think so. Um, maybe not lower priorities, probably because the people that are taking care of these systems, right? If you take your average municipal, municipality worker, um, they're used to, you know, if they have a pothole in the road, they're used to, you know, getting out the cold pack and smacking it down with a hammer. Or if your meter is not working at your house, okay, they replace the meter. Um, that's usually the level of extent and knowledge uh, of most persons taking care of small municipalities. 
Um, they know, for example, okay, yeah, they, they can read the pH meter maybe in the water in the water tanks. They can do the tests. Whatever the computer tells them is probably gospel. Um, it, it's because cybersecurity in general or knowledge of electronics or just engineering concepts is not a commonplace thing in 99% of the society. And so that affects your municipality, which is largely staffed by average individuals. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but they're just – uh, a good sample of what normal society is. And so that's another area that we're deficit. One of the things I like to do when I look at landscape issues and where things are is compare it to what the traditional computer user will understand. And Windows is a really good example of what you're talking about, baking security in from the start and building SDL processes and all the exploit mitigations along the line, right? So we have these, what I, what I put up as like uh, uh, moments, we had the pre-XP service pack two days that ended up that, that led us to the warm era. Then Microsoft shipped the firewall turned on by default, turned on automatic updates. People started patching, and we got to a place you know in the Vista world where things seem to have regularized post warm era. Where does the ICS SCADA world sit as you look at that? Are we in the pre-XP service pack two days? There are we? Where are we? Ooh, good question. I like this one. Because um, Vista was the start of something, but it wasn't the end of something, right? Vista was the beginning was, of uh, UAC and adding all those prompts and so on. But at least it trained, it, yeah. trained, it trained computer users to understand boundaries. It wasn't meant to be a security boundary, but at least we got to the point where we were segmenting admin from regular users and so on. So that was a moment there as well for Vista. Yeah. So yeah, so let's 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 broaden that range by just one more Microsoft product uh, era, which would be Windows Seven, because Windows Seven they did a lot of things good, right? So let's let's start here where we went from basically everyone can drive <laughs> Windows XP, right? Who doesn't care about your driver's license to having something that looks like some level of of competency, like a driver's license, and then you have the pro driver on the right hand side, the Windows Seven. Um, Maybe that's not a good analogy, but what, what I'm saying is the Wild West is the Windows XP days. Those were those were great. Everyone logged in as administrator. Guest account could literally do anything it wanted anyways. Um, we're not there in the ICS world. We're, we're not there anymore. Maybe on the embedded side, yes. Uh, once you get inside of a device, have fun. Um, when it comes to overall... Uh, posture. Posture, yeah, posture is a good word of putting it. Overall, just overall awareness even. Uh, we're roughly, we're still before the Windows 7 era. Or sorry, the, we're still before the Windows Vista era, but we're getting close to it. But we're not past it or at it. Where are we, where are ICS uh, hardware and software vendors, uh, again, using comparisons again, where are they with the addition of things like anti-exploitation mechanisms, ASLR, that type of thing? Are we starting to see security being baked into the there and is that being uh, and what is driving that is that is that uh, uh you know dot gov regulations driving that or do you see security being an, an actual business enabler that drives these companies to start taking it seriously good question so for top tier vendors i think security is a selling feature and so they've been doing it just because their customers have been asking for it or they can afford to do it um they they can afford to you know they have manpower they can get it to market with a few extra features um, I think they, they'll, they'll be the ones that are doing it more. Now, there's, there's a discrepancy when we talk about embedded software and hardware versus, uh, and when we're assuming that they're all homogenous. When you take embedded systems, like let's say a router or a switch, that is largely a commodity. 
it, it can use the same Linux, Linux kernel as as another, you know, the, the Linux Cisco equivalent of it in the industrial world. In those type of devices, especially if it's a top tier vendor, you will see things like uh, st sometimes stack hardening. You will sometimes see things like uh, people looking and adding canaries to binaries. You will see uh, SSH only to those devices versus Telnet being allowed and SSH as an option to enable. You will see more of that. Uh, but it's a, but it, but well, it's I, but it's segmented by the maturity of the company and, and and availability of resources versus a lot of the other smaller things where you may not see it, yeah. right? Yeah, and then also you have some very prominent vendors. I won't say who they were, uh, but when they just cut corners left, right, and center, maybe to hit a cost target, um, or they're basically remanufacturing based off of a reference design. So I don't know. You pick. I don't know. I'm not not picking on NXP, but you go to NXP or the old school or Freescale equivalent. And you'd go by and say, hey, I want, a, I want a board that has this much processing power, this many network cards or FIs, this much RAM, this much flash. What do you have for me that's out of the box? And they'll be like, oh, we have A, B, and C. Well, if I'm a low profit margin or I'm, I'm going after a low target price point, I'm going to do the least amount of work possible. So I'm going to take everything I can get, uh, do the least amount of work. Hey, it's probably certified because it came from whatever the original vendor was. I go to manufacturing and I never look back at it. That is really common in a lot of ubiquitous embedded devices that are used for networking functionality, like protocol gateways, or uh, uh, sometimes you have these little embedded Linux boxes that, that, that communicate to serial drivers and stuff. You see a lot of that. You'll, you really will see a lot of that. But then when you get to the embedded uh, PLCs, um, the program logic controllers and you know the cards that go into the racks, the, the distributed control systems, then we're not talking about commodity operating systems like Linux anymore. We've gone to VxWorks, or you're going QNX, uh, or you're going to other all kinds of deep proprietary systems. things, right? Yeah, and, and also you, this amount of you know, there's a skill curve there, which is okay. You can you can own or pop a box on a on a Linux box, but then when you go to embed it, it it it, it shifts real quick. That's changing though, and the other thing is the the uh, there's the reliance on security by obscurity, which is kind of like what you just defined there is going away and what we're starting to see is a lot more security research third party mm -hmm. outside security research capabilities availability of tools availability of a lot of open source utilities to help poke and pop at these things today so as much as the learning curve is higher that's changing and what we're starting to see is this kind of democratization of security research mm -hmm. in this space isn't that accurate Part of it, um, I think there's a few reasons for, for that democratization. One is the standardization of technologies. We've all chosen what looks like a good file system, right. Flash, for example. We've chosen that uh, we don't like PowerPC anymore, but we like ARM. And ARM is little Indian, not big Indian. We've made some choices. We've made choices like, hey, um, it doesn't make sense to main, main, you know, maintain a weird branch of the kernel that nobody else uses and write custom drivers. Well, let's use vanilla drivers and get all that stuff for mainstream. So that's, it's good because it provides you extra sources of, of information. It reduces your overhead as a vendor. Um, and it actually hopefully will increase the security of products because they can actually do updates for us in the future. Um, so the, it is, it's good and bad at the same times. Um, but when it comes to microcontrollers and understanding, you know, how does that, that chip talk to that over um, a specific It's bus, still the domain of very few folks. I mean, that's, that's the reality. Exactly. And then just because you have a one PLC, you know, and you think you understand it, but the application that's on it, that it's running is, can be very different from another, even though it looks the same to you as a, as a model number. So there is a lot of nuance to it. It's not just 
oh, I have the knowledge. Let's go. And that's the the other thing is like for, from from the defender's perspective, a lot of the defenders don't have the capabilities and the tools and the ability to even validate or verify the you know just the the root of trust on some of these things. That when I when I talk about the availability of resources and 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 expertise to manage these things, there it's not just the folks making it, it's the folks deploying it and managing it and administering it. Right? Like even there, we don't have the tools and resources available for folks to even Absolutely. validate any of Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the industry is focused on producing red teamers and malware analysis pros and, and threat into Intel hunters and, and this and that, and you know, all of these sexy job titles. Um, and it's really cool to break stuff. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's part of my job, but that's not what the industry needs. We need doers uh, that fix things that properly understand the difference. Like, Hey, you know, I might not be able to, to make this product better, right? It's a locked out product. It's from ABC manufacturer, but I have a choice in front of me, which is disable Telnet and use SSH out of the box. Right, right. That's the level of skill that we need more of. I mean, as, a, as an intermediary step, I'm not saying that, you know, if you work for a power company, you should understand how embedded electronics work. It might help um, to have some knowledge in that domain. Like, hey, what what does that that CISA alert mean when it's talking about a buffer overflow? It is good to have some basics there, but there's a, there's a there's a light path and then there's a, the expert path, and nobody's asking. And I don't think the industry is asking everybody to be a craftsman of sorts. We're looking for someone that's uh, that's that wants to know enough to to be able to make an educated decision, and no one to ask for extra help and to push out the right things at right off the bat, not just, uh, just accept things as is. You should never do that. When you zoom out at securing tech at a very high level, what you're essentially doing is uh, attempting to remove complexity, remove complexity, remove complexity, reduce attack surface, reduce attack surface. Is that, uh, is that what's happening in your ICS SCADA world? Or are you so way behind where that's, it's not the, on the security side, it's not that mature? The IT side of most organizations, and up until maybe the, the IT OT firewall, um, is usually pretty good. I, I won't lie, it's usually pretty good. Now, when someone says there was an OT ransomware attack, usually what you've seen is uh, the holes in that in that concept where maturity means security. It doesn't. Security is the result of maturity, hopefully, right. and a series of other things. And when you see someone say, hey, XYZ got ransomware, well, largely it's because the other pieces weren't there that they should have been doing for the last two decades. Um, starting with ISA 95, like I don't agree with the security model of the Purdue model. I think it's uh, outdated. It works from a logical perspective to discuss timings between layers of devices, but it doesn't make sense. And and as we progress to uh, PLCs talking directly to the cloud or aggregating uh, all of these things into a virtualized environment and they all run on the same box, you will find that uh, the defenders are really going to have to catch up, but also it's gonna cause uh, more more resiliency problems in terms of the way that we orchestrate maintenance, the way that we choose new products in the future. This is gonna get way harder for us in this space. Um, And so some of us are trying to say, uh, don't go to the cloud today. Uh, It's coming, we don't want it to happen, but it will happen. And so you need to start engineering in uh, all the stuff you need before you get there today, before you tack on more problems to the, the you know the swamp that you already have. Are you starting to see folks migrating and um, and outsourcing security to cloud vendors uh, in this space now? 
For some things like uh, really big data acquisition, like data acquisition and reporting, absolutely, I think that makes sense to push it there. But when you want and want to control localized site access, you're not going to put your Active Directory uh, in Azure, especially when Microsoft and Amazon like to go down usually once or twice a year. Right. So right. you don't do that, especially. Uh, so we call those situations break glass situations, where you know you get the, the little fire pick in the wall and you break the glass panel and pull the switch. That's what we're trying to prevent you from doing now. I do think in certain countries, I was in Japan two, three years ago now, uh, went over there for a joint warfare exercise, and they were describing to us how they can do a lot of their SCADA at a high level and grid management from the cloud. They have an advantage that North America doesn't have, and when I say North America, Canada, United States, and probably good portions of Europe. You, we don't have fiber optics to the curb everywhere. Right, right. And so that's a humongous limitation where if you're in the middle of nowhere and you have one, five megabits per second, you're not going to be doing any control in, the, in that of that nature. Um, especially when we're talking about when someone says real time, I ask, what do you mean by real time? Are we talking about you can detect that your web page is slow or are you talking about something you'll never be able to notice in your entire lifetime? Um, when we get into that second category, their cloud is not going to happen, but it will work for things that, that are slower moving, like maybe 30 milliseconds of delay, stuff like that. I think it will work, uh, it, but it will only work under certain circumstances if you have the infrastructure. This is a question. Use case. This is a question I ask uh, the APT hunters, the guys who are tracking APT on, on traditional networks is, what percentage of all attacks that is actually happening do you speculate we actually have visibility on? And I'll turn that question to you in your world. What percentage of all attacks that are on the way right now, we'll never know, but what percentage do you think we have visibility on? Are we just seeing the tip of the spear? Are we, do we have eyes on a good subset of what's happening? Help me understand our, our level of visibility. I think our visibility is near zero. Really? Really near zero. And, and so wait, 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 wait. I want you to linger there for a second. I want you to linger there for a second because I get this ICS cert newsletter. Um, I think it's a quarterly thing that the ICS mm -hmm. cert puts out. And there usually is a list of pipeline attacks and gas type attacks. Not much detail, but you'll, you'll get a glimpse into some of the things that have been reported and are being tracked. ICS cert put out, what, 250 security advisories in 2020. Uh, you know, average CVSS is 8.0, 41% increase in critical, 47% increase in CVEs, right? It just sounds like there's so much happening there. And you're saying that that's just 0% of what's really happening. Is that accurate? Absolutely. So prime example, and I'm not knocking CISA or any of the certs. Um, I have one vulnerability that will be released in, in June that affects a very large amount of uh, turbines, but... I've submitted a lot of stuff to a lot of vendors in the last year and a half, and only one of them even got a response from the vendors. And maybe that's because CISA is going through some organizational changes due to a different administration. Right. Um, but the whole vulnerability reporting system is honorary. Nobody's holding people accountable to it. Nobody's making sure that the data is synchronized, right? So CISA does an alert and it lists the CV, but NVD says it's reserved and gives you no details, including the CV string. Right, so and that's not unique to your world, either. that's just generally yeah. how security responses happen. But if I have about, you know, six or seven vulnerabilities in, and I actually have a 30-page report for one of, the, one of the top tier vendors that they're ignoring, or at day, about, about day 45 right now, that's very telling to me. 
that means that we've barely touched the surface in at least knowing the vulnerabilities in those products. Now we can assume that they're all vulnerable and maybe that's, a, that's the right way to go. Uh, but in terms of what CISA can be monitoring or any of these government agencies, I mean, we're assuming governments are, are omniscient and, you know, amazing, but the truth is they're usually probably some of the more slower movers <laughs> in, in the industry and, or they're taking credit for other people's work. I can't remember who quoted that. Um, I feel like that was Clint, uh, from Clint Bogdan, but, um, that, that's a, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I don't think we really have a good idea. I don't think many asset owners, except for maybe a few really know what's going on. Uh, but then again, where does your visibility start and end? So if you take the FireEye, uh, they have like an hourglass where they say attackers are prevalent on the top, right? In your enterprise IT systems. And as you get closer to the bottom, they're not as, not as present. And then, but consequences are higher down there, of right, course, right. In, in my world. That's, that's another issue why there's no visibility is you can't know or because these, these places are very, uh, are very defensible, uh, to quote Rob Lee, um, you might find that it's very hard to make changes in these environments. Uh, and you're probably your biggest risk is probably insiders accidentally or malicious. So it, it, it's very hard to think of it from a monitoring perspective. And if you're good at this stuff, you're not going to be broadcasting it probably on the internet because when you start, you start playing with water, electricity, hospitals, uh, nations, you're going to wind up on a hit list pretty quick. And, and you're going to have a hospital at your front or a hospital, <laughs> a helicopter at your front door. But does that mean that the attackers that we're seeing, like in the wild attacks against these types of systems is all nation states? Oh, and I don't like that word nation state either. Nation I mean, nation things. state, when I say nation state <laughs> back, yeah, it's true. It's maybe it's important for us to define what we need by nation yeah. state. When I say nation state, I'm, I'm talking about uh, uh, how we, when I, the, in, in, on the computer in the regular enterprise security world, we view nation state within the realm of APT and, um, and government backed cyber espionage type activity. When I read a lot of these stories, and again, I'm not, I'm not from your world. I'm, I'll admit that I'm, I'm very much an outsider observing and trying to understand what's happening there. When I read these stories, I get a sense that a lot of it is signaling, signaling capabilities. Infections might just be signaling capabilities. The idea is not necessarily to take a city power offline but it's to show that we can do it or we have the ability to do it. I mean, I'm thinking about it along the sexy, you know, headline lines. Is that fair? Yeah, and we have to be, we have to be mindful of where some of those reports and who wrote them. Um, and and, and the why they're being that. written. And, yeah. Exactly. And also uh, certain countries have a military machine and that military machine um, and some are not just military, but some are very espionage and intel focused. They signal a different message regularly saying, if you don't play by our rules, we'll stomp you into the ground. Um, right. So the signaling is normal part of uh, uh, government to government activity. Agreed. Now, it doesn't mean that they have the capabilities to do so and, and or and or could effectively deliver them. That's another thing altogether to orchestrate uh, such a epic scale. Like someone says, let's take down the power grid across the United States. In theory, it all sounds wonderful. Right. But if you need to think about the amount of manpower, the orchestration and stuff like that, I mean, the government it, can barely- It's not a trivial operation. Some, some days. Exactly. We can barely keep it up when we're trying to keep it up. <laughs> Right. I mean, I struggle to take care of myself. So imagine trying to take care of X amount of other complicated things. So I, 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 I I feel for it and I, and I feel bad for the people that have gone into these situations with blinders on because they're not, you know, poking their heads up and saying, oh, wow, there's a whole world out here. If you took, let's say, we'll circle back to your first question, which was 
you know, how bad is it? How deep are we into this? Well, if you took a thousand attacks, maybe two, maybe three are probably going to be APT, you know, very technical, uh, sophisticated malicious entities. But the majority are, uh, you know, script kitties, or uh, maybe that's a smaller amount of them, but the, the main ones that are maybe getting in there and doing a little more harm are opportunistic criminals, you know, the cyber cybersecurity or cyberspace Hells Angels equivalent. Um, ransomware gangs, too. I mean, ransomware gangs may not reach that level of what we describe as nation state, but they're the mercenary groups who are monetizing a lot of these things. And and exactly. for ICS and, and the, the, the types of systems you're talking about here, it's so much more critical and downtime is so uh, valuable that ransomware there becomes a lot more lucrative and a lot more of a, yeah. uh, you know, big business. And we're also in first first world countries, and and so I think as you get closer to second and third world countries, the level of sophistication that's needed is zero, or or closer to zero than it does, let's say, to take a take a main uh, energy producer down. It doesn't quite work the same way because budgets are different, skills are different, resources are different. So if you are, let's say, in Mexico, and I'm making this up, uh, a big portion of probably what you're going to be dealing with from a, from a from a cyber crime perspective is basically low-level, no-name people doing, you know, because everyone's still running Windows 7 or Windows XP or Vista still because it's a different type of world, um, it's going to be more racketeering and, and, and localized gang uh, extortion. Uh, but when you start getting towards, like, the, the, the higher-profile targets, they actually are more equivalent to, let's say, um, naval pirates uh, of the Caribbean way back when, where, you know, the English were the first people to figure out that, hey, we can, we can, we can basically extort pirates to work, working for us or kill them. So that's what the English did. They said, let's turn them, in, turn them against the French and the Spanish. So when they did that, they said, they said don't attack any of their English assets. Don't, go to, don't do something that's going to provoke a direct confrontation or a war with Spain or France. But I want you to go after that really small uh, colony over here, this little set of islands, because that's going to inconvenience them and keep them busy. But if you don't, we're going to kill you. We're going to wipe you out because we have the, the forces to do so. I think that's a more representat representative uh, analogy of where those groups and those gangs are today. Those maybe some of the nation-sponsored ones, um, but not the pure APTs. But I think the majority is the, the naval pirates, if anything. Right. What worries you the most? In, in your world, the, the kind of vulnerability research you're doing, the kind of, uh, you know, services calls you guys are taking, the kind of, uh, paint a picture for me of how worrying it is. I know you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of fail-safe mechanisms, a lot of these things are built. But at the same time, we keep hearing that these teams have no resources, patching is crap, even availability of patching is crap. So I, I feel lost that it, it appears dangerous and there's a lot of fud and hype around, you know, all these things that can happen. And what is the reality? Well, I mean, to quote my favorite Hobbit, right? Every day you step outside your front door is a new day, um, something along those lines. I, I think there is truth in, in there's danger here and there's risk uh, and, and safety concerns, especially for environment type stuff. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think a lot of it, if you took in all of the other compensating controls and you wound up at a reasonable risk, a residual risk, you'd find out that that won't keep you up at night. In certain situations, it probably will. Like that one facility out of 100 is probably terrifying. And it happens to be right next to a city and it has chlorine gas. Okay, I'm going to be more concerned about that one for sure. But I'm not going to be concerned about uh, that steel mill down the road. Yes, a few hundred lives could be lost or stuff like that. I'm not, you know, not trying to be unhuman about that. But that's far less concerning to me 
than than something like water or uh, you know uh, oil refinery that happens to be next to a city. That's a very different perspective. So I do stay up on that. I think there's a lot of risks in the products. Uh, I think that dependence on certain countries uh, for right or wrong is a risk. And and by the way, this isn't new. Starting with solar winds, this isn't new with uh, anything else. Uh, for example, in a previous life, we would get boards, PCBs, gerbered and manufactured in China. We would get some basic pieces like, you know, simple resistors soldered on there because it was cheap. But when we came, we never sent good parts there to be soldered on because we knew that we wouldn't get back what we bought in the first place. So they'd ship back the boards. They would be rebuilt in Germany or in the United States, reflashed if they had any flashed onto them. And we would double check it. So there is some uh, checks and balances in there that have been, these these OEMs have been aware of for quite some time. Doesn't mean stuff doesn't slip by. Uh, shipments don't get interdicted. Um, but the the screaming from the rooftop thing, uh, it's, it's warranted under, under certain circumstances, but you know, don't be the boy that cries wolf. At the same time, isn't it fair to assume that there's a solar wind circling around your world happening now as we speak? I, I don't think you even need to. I mean, almost all of the Windows-based applications ship with really old versions of .NET. <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, the assumption um, is like a lot of that stuff is royally pwned, right? I mean, you could. You could. I mean, you don't even need to insert your own backdoor if they're shipping with it legitimately. Uh, or or um, um, various OEMs actually shipped TeamViewer built into their installers right, for right. their own tech support. So. Why, why add your own weapons and backdoors if you can get away with legitimate functionality? Yeah, the features are already there, right? The first Absolutely. Well, my SAN, my SAN's ransomware attack was basically that. I used BusyBox. Exactly. And I said, oh, I just use Telnet and, and all the stuff that's in the shell. I didn't need to bring anything else to the party. The first time we connected, you were doing some really cool research. I believe it was on yacht systems, satellite systems on yachts. Was, uh, is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I did do some, I did do some GPS work. Yeah, uh, it's a GPS on, work. Um, what, what is, what is in, what are you, what are you playing with these days? What is the latest, uh, uh, uh bit of research you're playing with? Well, I mean, I just finished that SANS ransomware, uh, on, on three different embedded devices. And that was a heck of a reverse engineering project for a month and a half. Where can we <laughs> find that? Where can the listeners find that? I believe they'll be able to find that, uh, SANS will be releasing it shortly. So okay. if you're following SANS and the ICS, uh, kind of domain, you right, right. should show up pretty pretty soon, and I probably will write an article discussing it in, in detail. Uh, none of, none of, none of the GPS stuff, none of that stuff anymore. Not so much. I, I just only have so many hours in a day. Um, I, I do have. I, there was a presentation from Crisis Con. I think I might have done one for one of the Kaspersky events as well, and I think right. it might be kicking around on YouTube, maybe. Uh, yeah, there's. I've, I've, been, I've been playing with it, and actually, my re- the thing I really wanted to play with, uh, and I and I, I researched it. The math is sound. There's some proof of concepts out there in the hacking world, but localization and identification of wireless assets is going to be huge in the in the upcoming future. It's going to be really hard. Explain, explain um, what you mean by that. So, in the industrial control system space, there's this, and there's been this for quite some time, but it has limited value to me. Uh, Packet, passive packet anomaly detection. And so you, everyone, you know, understanding what's on the wire and, and seeing if it's a legitimate asset and getting a fingerprint of it, this is easy. Like it's, it's not, it's not fundamentally uh, paradigm changing. Right. It's well figured out. If you have the knowledge and you have the time, you can figure it out. And if encryption gets in there, then your value is 
even less than what it should be. And that's going to come sooner than later. But let's say, for example, um, you have a facility behind an air gap and everyone says, oh, air gaps are great. Well, your third parties don't think so. So they just put in a LTE modem to help them do their job, right? Um, is it bad? Yes, but it's not malicious necessarily. It just usually gets forgotten and, and everyone- It adds a tax surface, right? It is, and it's one you're probably not aware of. So let's say someone puts an LTE modem in there or we have seen wireless uh, 2.4 gigahertz uh, access points in pump houses that nobody knows there. And if you connect to it with no credentials, you can get back into the main facility. So there, there's a bunch of those. So what you'd want to do is you'd want to do some localizations and say like, hey, what does this, and because these facilities are fairly steady state besides people walking around with cell phones, you could say, hey, we have a new signal emanating from this area here or radiating from this place. And you could roughly triangulate it. That's a pretty good start to see if your facility has changed. Um, and then so you could maybe make some, uh, some, you know, you could push out a request for an investigation by the security guard or but next time you do your walk around by the site supervisor, go see if something's been plugged in. That's where I think the industry is going and that's where I wanted to play, but uh, that's not, not what I've been able to do lately. Interesting. We're running out of time and I want to, I want to uh, let you out of here with this question on traditional, you know, CISOs building security programs to defend organizations today. They're looking at, you know, at, they're, they're hearing a lot of fun and noise from a million vendors, but at the end of the day, there are four or five foundational things they're focused on patching, uh, addressing fish, phishing, asset discovery and asset management, which is kind of tied to patching. There's this, there's this bundle of foundational things that have mm -hmm. to be in place before you even start to build and put any sort of shiny boxes on top of it. In the ICS world, can you give me those five checklist foundational things that must be in place to protect those systems and help defenders understand maybe some things that they're maybe not thinking about? Oh, good one, good one. Um, so fundamentally, multiple firewalls, north, south, east, and west. Think of zones and conduits, which is an industrial control system term, which means uh, lump things into uh, layers and their functions, less so than trying to put them into a box and assuming that you will that all of the layers will, will add up. No, people punch through them on a regular basis. So rely on people on the zones and conduits and also rely on the fact that security degrades over time, so you're gonna have to keep checking on this regularly. That's, that's the first one I would say. The second state is um, because these facilities are, are long lived and because certain things like Windows boxes or HMIs are more frequent to change, virtualize them if you can, because most of this stuff runs on commodity hardware these days on, on gigabit ethernet and stuff like that. Let me, let me, let me interrupt you for a quick second. Uh, this, uh, this advice you're giving me is relevant to the small water pipeline shop guys that we just discussed have no access to resources and budget. The stuff you're describing here is for the rich or is this for everyone? Or is it available and accessible to everyone? It's accessible for everyone. Um, so let's say at $100,000, that's, that's a good right. budget. Let's set the baseline at 100 grand a year, your, your budget to secure a water plant. These foundational things can be gotten for that. You can put a, you can do a really, besides maybe some of the human labor, because that's expensive, but in terms of equipment and resources and licenses, you can get a lot done with $100,000. For example, a couple of resilient Cisco switches, right? Because everything is really cheap nowadays. We're not talking about 10 gigabit per second here. We're talking about one maximum. Yeah. Um, you can really, you can get a lot done with uh, hundred grand and, and you know, good quality. And I won't say Cisco specifically, but some commodity IT based devices, you can get some scale. Right. Um, you, can, you can do that. VMware, dirt cheap these days. 
So virtualize what you can and get that. And because you did so, you get backups, you get snapshots. Um, you can help yourself. And then if I was to do one more. Wait, wait, wait. I, I, I want you to go back to your list because people complain to me all the time about my podcasting style where I interrupt and take <laughs> people on tangents while they were listening to the list. So if you can just go back to those foundational things, you talked about the first one. Um, uh, just first help one them understand what they can yeah. get for, 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 for this budget you just, you just described. Sure. So your first step is get you can get rock solid uh, commodity based uh, firewalls that are and and switches that are consistent with the environment that will work very well and provide adequate security where you probably had none before. Your second step: virtualize your Windows boxes where you can. Put them in one place. Get yourself away from uh, being hardware dependent. By doing so, you get snapshots and back backups, which means chances are in the industrial world. Um, you, you typically know when an incident's going to occur in one or two places. One is, uh, as it's sort of happening, right, there's the initial uh, IOCs, the indicators of compromise, or after the fact. There's no in-between industrial. So chances are you're never going to see it because you have no resources, so you're going to be recovering. So be prepared. Virtualization is a great second step. My third one would be, because we're in a steady-state environment with very few changes, uh, use things like carbon black or... Um, application whitelisting or allow listing, I think is the PC term these days. And because you're not constantly installing new versions of software, whitelisting doesn't work well in IT environments where stuff's constantly chasing, but in our world, it does work very well. And it actually uh, makes sense because we're not there changing stuff all the time. Um, those are three very good places to get started. And then your fourth on top of all that would be to make sure that you have electronic maintenance. So we call it OTSM, OT systems management, but it means uh, the maintenance of those electronic assets, which would be patches, updates, uh, applying group policy in the right way. Um, so you have your own, you have your own list of challenges on the asset management, asset discovery and pushing patches to things. Cause a lot of, mm -hmm. the, a lot of the times you just don't know what's sitting there and what needs to be patched, yeah. right? When you get down to firmware and some of the lower level stuff, it's a whole ball of wax and nightmare there. Whole, whole, whole set of things. But if I said it, like I said, I had a hundred grand and I was to <laughs> put a good dent into it, I wouldn't necessarily be focusing on embedded. Embedded is truly important. Don't get me wrong. But if you don't have those first three things yeah, you're and, and time vulnerability management, else then you're really gonna struggle. Um, and now obviously there's room in all of those areas for policy and procedure, uh, you'll need them, but th there's much more there. And if I were to say, what are the last capabilities I would add? And, and especially if my budget was bigger than $100,000, I would not add passive anomaly detection and I would not have threat intelligence because those things only help you after you have the rest of it under control. In my opinion, and the rate, of diminishing, the rate of diminishing returns on threat intel is also something that it's very costly and it only, you know, the value of it is this, you know, short time. So it, it's very, that's an interesting world altogether. Are you guys in ICS world, MFAing all the things as well? Is that a big part of just making sure that password hygiene and policies are in place to uh, uh, handle that weak spot? I wish. Uh, <laughs> um, you will see it on. But it, does that make your list? Access. Does that make your it, list of it, things to it, do? It, it does if you're doing remote access. Got it. So if you have a VPN, you shouldn't be using the same credentials as you log into the jump box on the other side, right? You should. So the rule, the golden rule, is thou shall never directly access uh, a device or a system that's used in OT from the internet or vice versa. That should never talk to the internet directly. So you'd VPN into a gate uh, termination point. You'd log in through that VPN to uh, a secure terminal like a Citrix box. And from that Citrix box, which you harden and really, really do all your due diligence on, 
then you speak outwards to the devices that are, are less uh, less easy, less simple to, to keep secure, right? They might be outdated, run an old OS that you can't update or something. Um, you'd want to protect those assets as much as possible. And it gives you options when you want to go change out technologies as well because you have this layered approach. But if you go, oh, I want this PLC to talk directly to the internet, um, like some cloud integrated thing that's got uh, MQTT or something, you're setting yourself up for failure by doing that because you've taken away your ability to make educated choices. Do we, are we leaning heavily on, is there a problem in your world where we have an issue of dependence on technology versus people? And do you have a people skills shortage and experience and, and, and uh, education shortage in your world as well? And, yes. and another more important question, do, do, is it, is, are, are skills from traditional security, enterprise security transferable to that, spot, to that place? Oh boy, this is a very loaded set of questions. Uh, I know, I'm, ju I'm, I'm just babbling randomly because I have a list of things I wanted to talk to you about. We're at 45 minutes in and I'm like, okay. Uh, okay, so uh, across the board, um, there's a skill shortage, not a people shortage, a skill shortage. So if you go on LinkedIn, I'm going to see a bazillion persons on LinkedIn that say they have certifications and education and all of this stuff. It doesn't mean they know what security is, much less engineer it in the first place or do it. And that's because um, of ex lack of experience or it's because our curriculum and our, our, our training programs are not up to speed? Uh, well, education in Canada is considered a revenue generating activity. So All over the world. That's not <laughs> unique to Canada. <laughs> right. But I like to speak about what I know. Right. Um, in that case, that, that's, that's very problematic because everyone's focused on the breaking of things, which we kind of circled back to. So, they, so there's all these people that are red teamers and, and, and ABC peoples, and that doesn't apply to what we need. So there's a skill shortage of defenders, for defenders. There's a skill shortage, uh, or I would say a deficiency in society for understanding what they are doing. For example, uh, in Canada, it snows in the winter, so you do have a choice on how you drive. And if you decide to drive even with the best winter tires and the best all-wheel drive car, chances are if you're, if you're not driving uh, appropriately to the weather and the conditions, you'll wind up in the snowbank. Cybersecurity is a little bit like that. You need to, and especially in OT, you really need to take into consideration what is going around you. And that isn't something that's taught in school. That is uh, a, a, a very innate skill that you probably learn growing up, or you can learn it by rote learning. That takes experience, but it also takes the person to be able to put aside their ego at the end of the day, because there's no ego, there's no room for ego allowed in safety situations, in my opinion. You leave your baby at the door. Um, your job is that you might not like some of the political things that are happening, but your job is to make sure the water's off, the water's on, the lights are on, you know, those type of things. That, that mindset of being able to tackle problems and to be able to deliver and, and not quibble about this and that and say, hey, that malware is absolutely terrible. No, your job is to make sure that the things keep going and you need to abide by that. You need to, you know, pilots don't, don't play around with their, with their takeoffs and, and, their, and their approaches to landings, neither should you. And, and that, that mindset is missing from the people side. Um, technology, we have, a, we have a gap there, which is everyone thinks technology will save the day, a single solution. No, uh, that's not how it works. It's multiple technologies because not everyone does it all well. And silver bullets just have never worked for anyone. They always wind up being in wasted investments. Don't do that. So that's that's a risk there. And then on the processes side, right, PPT, um, we need better processes for this that are applicable to a wider audience, uh, not just IT and enterprise people, but for OT people, right? When you replace a PLC, 
maybe you should do a memory dump on it while you're doing it. It's not really extra work. It's just an extra step in the process. Do it. That's that, that might be your contribution to, to cybersecurity for OT. If that's what you do. Uh, I think that could be done now. And then circling back there, I think enterprise and it can learn and can become OT uh, easily enough. Might, might not be the guy who figures out how turbines work. That's not what you maybe do, but maybe you know how the active directory server works uh, that, that those systems feed off of, or the radius server, um, you can add lots of value and vice versa. The, the control system guys and the OT peoples, they can really add lots to the, to the IT world and being like, what are you doing wasting your time investing on this widget? I think, that, I think it could be a very good grounding experience uh, once everyone you know, got past the saying whose church is better than the other guy's church arguments. So you're saying there's a lot of room for defenders in ICS security. Is there a, some parting words you can give for some folks in the, uh, on the career side of things trying to figure out a shift here? Is there specific things folks should pay attention to to be able to pivot and land in your world? Well, if you want job security, I would say <laughs> go into this world. Not because that there's always problems to fix. There is always problems to fix. But, um, but those skills are transferable at, easily? I, I think so. I think so. If you have an inquisitive mind and want to do the hard time, and yes, OT is a bit of a thankless job at times, but I think anybody can do it if, if you want to do the time. And, and it's very rewarding. Um, you know, people might not thank you. Hey, thanks for keeping the lights on. But when you look under Cove ID, uh, under our current, you know, situation, guess what? The infrastructure is still working. Now, is it as good as before? That's up for debate. I can't say. But at least it's working and you're taking it for granted. So there's room for you. There's money in this industry. There's lots of job roles. It might not be your glamorous $200,000 a year Google job, uh, but $100,000 in benefits is pretty good to me. Uh, and you're doing a critical piece of service to society. So I say go for it and join this world. That's a good, pleasant way to end this podcast, which almost never ends positively. We're always talking bad news. That's a bit of a good news. Ron Brash, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Come back. Let's do it again one day. Thank you. Always happy. 